It's 2015, and a packed courthouse in Atlanta is waiting for defendants to arrive. It's the sentencing hearing of one of the longest trials in Georgia's history. After eight months, it's finally coming to an end. Now, Mr. Ray's right hand. The trial has been a sensation. It's in the papers every day and on TV. The defendants are being tried on the Racketeering Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act. Most of us know it as RICO. It's usually associated with the mafia, designed to catch the most hardened of organized criminals. Combined, these defendants are facing around 200 years in jail. After about 20 minutes, they begin to file into the courtroom. It's 10 of them eight men and two women. The men are wearing suits and ties, the women cardigans and pantsuits. The defendants are all black. My name is Cynthia Ann Mack. I'm from Georgia. Sitting atop of his throne-like bench, the judge is white, wearing a bow tie and speaking with a loud Southern drawl rooted in the confidence of someone who has the fate of people's lives in hand. The evidence for her case was the most overwhelming in the whole He's been one of the main events in this case. Go to YouTube, and there's even a video made just of him. It's called Jerry Baxter's Best Bits. There are victims that are in the jail that I have sentenced kids. I don't like sentencing. One by one, people get up and give character witness. They say these defendants are dedicated. It's six. We want to see you no more until maybe six or seven o'clock. That's Monday through Friday. That they're God-fearing. She is a woman of strong faith in God. And they plead with the judge to grant them mercy. And I come to ask this court for mercy. Once again, for mercy. The testimonies go on and on, person after person coming up to tell the judge these are good people but the judge isn't really buying it. All I, wanted, all I want from any of these people is just to take some responsibility. But they refuse. They refuse. It's like the sickest thing that's ever happened to this town. Eventually, after hours and hours, he was ready to give his judgment. All right. I sentenced to 20 years with a balance on probation, 2,000 hours of community service, $25,000 fine. A 20-year sentence. That wouldn't be out of the ordinary in your standard mafia trial. Except these defendants, they weren't in the mafia at all. I'm sorry, And that's the only These defendants were about as far away from being in the mob as you can be. These defendants were, in fact, upstanding members of their community, revered in society as people who helped educate young minds. They were teachers. First, second, and third grade teachers. And they had just been sentenced to multiple years in the state penitentiary for their role in one of the most shocking cheating scandals in American history. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you.
do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is what my parents taught me when I was a kid. I read the Bible. I wanted to be good. And I thought everyone else did too. Then I went to graduate school for philosophy. Started reading folks like Kant, Plato, Hobbes. These dudes wrote hundreds of pages about what's right and wrong. Morality. You know, how you ought to act and treat others. How to live the so-called good life. I read them, and as I started to get older, going out into the world, I started to recognize that life and this concept of right and wrong can be a little complicated. That some people don't play fair. They don't take any notice of the rules. Basically, they cheat. Cheats. Everyone knows one. You know one. I know one. Probably know a few. They're everywhere in sports, politics, and business. Think about it. Can you remember the last time you turned on the TV or opened your phone, read the paper, and someone, somewhere, wasn't being accused of cheating? He is a racist, he is a con man, and he is a cheat. All of them knowingly conspired to help their children either cheat on the SAT or ACT. You cheated and you didn't earn it. As a society, we're obsessed with them. We marvel at their rise. And when we discover their powers are not real, we take ultimate pleasure in tearing them down. It's been my life, and I hope it can be again. I'm sorry, and I'm absolutely devastated. But what we never do is stop. Stop and ask ourselves, what actually makes these people, these cheats, cheat? And because we don't ask that question, we hardly ever put ourselves in their shoes. We never stop to consider that if we were in the same place with those same folks around us and those same set of circumstances, would we cheat too? Hey folks, I'm Alzo Slade. I'm a storyteller, stand-up comic, and I used to teach philosophy. And from something else, this is Cheat, a new series that tells the inside stories behind some of the biggest cheating scandals in history. In popular culture, in sport, finance, no stone left unturned. Some stories you may have heard about. That I stand before you and tell you that I have betrayed your trust. And plenty others you won't have. Looked like he was not being hit by gloves. It looked like he was being hit by a baseball bat. We'll talk to the people involved, meet the cheats, and each week we'll attempt to answer the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? In this first episode, we're talking about cheating in schools. Pretty normal, right? I mean, I did it. I remember writing the answers on my hand before going in the test and hoping I didn't sweat them out from being nervous. But in this episode, that's not the kind of school cheating we're talking about. In this case, it's not the students cheating. It's the teachers. As we heard at the top of the show, this scandal would end in the longest trial in Georgia's history and 10 teachers sentenced to over 200 years in prison. It's a story about race and class with a central question at its heart. What makes upstanding people, pillars of the community, break the rules so badly they wind up in jail, their lives destroyed? To understand how we got to that courtroom scene at the beginning, how this all happened, first, we have to get to know Atlanta a little bit. Atlanta, Georgia, home of the sweet Southern peach. It's also home to the civil rights movement, 
where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was lead pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church in the 60s. Atlanta is hip-hop center of gravity in the U.S. You got T.I., Outkast, Future. But while Atlanta is famous for all of these things, it's also a city that's often ranked number one when it comes to income inequality. Atlanta has, to this day, by some measures, the, the widest gap between rich and poor. People are very wealthy or they're very poor. Not a lot in between. This is Alan Judd. I'm a, an investigative reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In 1999, when Allen started working at the paper, three-quarters of the students in Atlanta's school system were living below the poverty line. The city of Atlanta itself and, and the school system were majority African-American. A lot of poor African-American students, families were involved in the school system. And everyone in the city thought that the schools were failing those black families and those students. You know, there were a lot of people in the business community who wanted to see the city school system improve to be as good as the suburban systems or the private schools. Public schools were under-resourced and segregated. Six of the city's nine high schools were 80% black. Atlanta's graduation rate for a big city school district was one of the worst in the country. And that's where Dr. Beverly Hall comes in. That's coming up after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Dr. Hall was born in Jamaica. She moved to America to study and got a degree from Brooklyn University in 1970. She'd been a teacher all her life, starting in the 70s in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, before moving to New Jersey and rising through the ranks. You know, there was sort of this phenomenon in America of the heroic superintendent who came into a struggling system and turned things around. And Dr. Hall was that heroic superintendent. And, you know, she had this reputation for being a reformer, which was a big thing at the time. She also had another reputation, one that she cemented in her first meeting with the principals of Atlanta schools. She called them all into a big meeting room at City Hall. It was this big Art Deco building in the center of town, and she said this to them. Look around. Most of you won't be here a year from now. And she said, I know how to swim with the sharks. It's almost a Glen Gary, Glen Ross kind of moment. Glen Gary, Glen Ross. That famous movie about the real estate salesman who has to fight tooth and nail for every sale. B, C, A, always B, B, C, closing. Always be closing. It might not seem an appropriate metaphor when it comes to a big public school system, but in Dr. Hall's case, it was. One of the things we wrote about Beverly Hall was how she really kind of cultivated the business community. She talked their language. She, she acted like a CEO herself with a lot of the perks and benefits of that. She looked like a CEO as well. She wore pantsuits and leopard print scarves. She believed the marketplace was key to turning around schools. She also courted big money donors, was obsessed with data, and set rigorous performance objectives that each school had to meet which is basically corporate speak 
for those kids better do well on their test or else. So actually, this was the perfect time for someone like Dr. Hall to enter the Atlanta public school system. Because one year after she was hired as superintendent, the president-elect of the United States, the Honorable George W. Bush. George W. Bush was elected president of the United States. And one of the cornerstones of his campaign was education. I want to begin with disadvantaged children in struggling schools and the federal role in helping them. After he became president, he passed something called the No Child Left Behind Act. The last several years have been a time of bold change in education. It was Bush's attempt to radically improve America's schools. It tried to do that through a system of testing and targeting. A drizzle of innovation has become a flood of reform. Everything was now going to be about this one test, and at the end of the year, if they didn't meet the grade targets set for them, schools would be punished. And everything was on the table from firing teaching staff to the whole school being closed or sold off to a private company. A movement of parents and political leaders, of voters and educators who are hungry for higher standards, tougher accountability, and real choices. And that's exactly what Dr. Beverly Hall did in Atlanta. If a school did well on its tests, all of the employees would receive up to $2,000 in cash. If they did badly, she simply fired the principal. By the end of her tenure, 90% of principals in Atlanta school system had been fired by Dr. Hall. And nowhere was this punishment and reward system more blatant than at the meeting she held at the beginning of each school year. So every year at the beginning of the school year in August, they would have a convocation at the Georgia Dome, which has now been torn down. The Georgia Dome used to be home to the Atlanta Falcons. It's a huge place more used to a crowd of 70,000 screaming football fans than a bunch of teachers. Each year, Dr. Hall would pack it full of employees of every single school in the district. All of these schools in a huge football stadium. Sounds like a seating plan nightmare, right? Well, Dr. Hall had that one covered. Schools that had performed well on tests, their staff would be seated up near the front of the arena, near the stage, in some cases on the stage. Schools that did less well were progressively placed farther and farther in the back of the room. Imagine how that must have felt for those teachers seated up in the nosebleed seats. It's like you're back at school again, sitting in detention. You've busted your ass all year, late nights, and working weekends, only for your boss to tell you, basically, you're not good enough. It certainly didn't feel good to sit up in the stands and watch everyone else get recognized, especially if, you know, you're a hardworking teacher, you've done all you can, um, but maybe your students didn't score a certain way on a test. This is Shani Robinson, a teacher in Atlanta at the time. We're going to hear more from Shani later, but she's clear that teaching in Atlanta back then was a really intense experience. The pressure to me was just something that was, in the air, you know, um, it, it might not have been stated directly, you know, but you, you just kind of felt it. And Shani says it wasn't just the pressure that was bad for her and her students. It was also the tests themselves. If you know that basically everything boils down to this one test, a lot of teachers just end up teaching to the test. If a teacher has a student who is in the fifth grade, and they were reading 
at a first grade level when they got into your class and you got them all the way to reading at a fourth grade level. You've done a great job as their teacher, but guess what? They're still not going to pass that test. And so I think the reflection that it has on the teachers is that you didn't do your job, which is not really true. The test doesn't measure that. But that pressure and Dr. Hall's rigorous focus on testing and targets did seem to be working. By 2009, Atlanta schools were flying high. A lot of the worst schools in the district went from the brink of closure to outperforming some of the best schools in the state. When Dr. Hall began as superintendent, fewer than 50% of eighth graders met the state standards in language and arts. By 2009, 90% of eighth graders had passed the exam. On September 8, 2009, she was named Superintendent of the Year for the entire country. Basically, that's the equivalent of a Nobel Prize for teaching. The Atlanta City Council declared the date should be known as Dr. Beverly L. Hall Day. She was even invited to Congress. Who was appointed superintendent of Atlanta Public Schools in 1999. And she explained how she had turned around Atlanta schools. First of all, I accepted the invitation to share with you the coming together of an entire community in Atlanta around a school system that was stagnant, stagnant and it's now being fixed. She was held up as being the great success story of George Bush's education policy. Under her watch, no child really was left behind. I think the phrase that she used was she had cracked the code for educating urban students. But was it all too good to be true? And Mike Bowers, my boss here at the law firm, called to ask if we would investigate what the Atlanta newspaper had found to be cheating. That's coming up after the break. At this point, Dr. Hall was a miracle worker in Atlanta schools. She was riding high. People were openly talking about the Atlanta model. But not everyone was convinced, especially the journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The thing that began to attract attention really was a little bit later when some of the schools began making these really huge gains year over year in test scores. Suddenly, some of the worst schools in the district weren't just meeting their testing targets. They were outright smashing them. And for an investigative journalist, this smelled like a story. When our data people started looking at that, it was like, this is just statistically almost impossible for a group of children to to improve that much at such a short time. The statistical like likelihood of some of these things were just, you know, infinitesimal. You know, there was like one, one in infinity would be the, 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 the actual literal odds. And that was really the beginning of why there were some questions, you know, real doubts about, about what she was doing. After some back and forth and a bit more reporting, Allen and his team published an article saying something ain't right here. Dr. Hall immediately went on the defensive. Who were these journalists to say that poor kids couldn't improve? The district did put together an investigation in reaction to what the newspaper was writing, but it didn't come to much. And they basically found, oh, there might have been a few problems here and there, but it wasn't systemic and essentially nothing much to see here. But one day, Alan sat at his desk and he got an email. 
an email that contained a memo from someone in charge of Dr. Hall's investigation. And this memo made clear that the investigation was predetermined. The outcome had been decided from the beginning. To see that, that in writing, that we're going to find that there was nothing improper, the whole thing was a sham. At this point, Allen was conflicted. On the one hand, this was an amazing story, a story that showed corruption at the heart of Dr. Beverly Hall's administration. But then it's also like, wow, that's just... To think about the lengths that people would go to to protect the administrators like, like Beverly Hall, rather than care about these children who were being, who were basically being cheated out of their education. He now knew there was something happening in those schools that wasn't normal, and he was determined to find out what. They published another story, saying Dr. Hall's report had been a fake. This time, the reaction was very different. So that was really the point at which the governor got involved. Um, what, was the, what was the moment that you first heard about this case and the potential cheating going on at the Atlanta public school system? That's my producer, Tom. I don't know how far in the weeds you want to get. I'm very literal. So when you ask a question like that, I'm, I'm assuming you want to know the we- in the weeds. This is Richard Hyde. He's an ex-Atlanta police officer who in 2010 was working as a private investigator at a law firm in the city. And Mike Bowers, my boss here at the law firm, called and said that uh, our governor had called Mike to ask if we would investigate what the Atlanta newspaper had found to be cheating. And I really didn't want to be involved in the case. I had other stuff to do. But his partners convinced him. They were like, This could be a big case for us, a real chance to right some wrongs in this city. And eventually, he said yes. But before he starts any case, he always makes sure of one thing. The first thing I do when I'm working with lawyers is we lay out the ground rules and what the division of labor is going to be. That's because he knows that lawyers like to spend their time reading over reams and reams of boring documents and spending hours and hours preparing their arguments. What they don't like doing is getting out in the field and investigating. I'm in manufacturing. The lawyers are in sales. They don't come to the factory and tell me how to put stuff together. And I don't get in the showroom and tell them how to sell it. And so while the lawyers are shut away in their offices with their papers and their books, Richard starts pounding the pavement. And he really has just one question on his mind. How do I find out what's actually going on inside these schools? And then he had a brainwave. And I went out and identified a school that I knew from my days as a young rookie patrolman in 1980, Venetian Hills. So Richard was a uniformed cop around the area of Venetian Hills Elementary in southwest Atlanta. So he knew it well, and he'd spent time in the school. This is where he was going to start. And I just started going to that school, trying to talk to people. He'd turn up every day in a red pickup truck, wearing these lizard skin boots. And I'm talking old style Southern sheriff with spurs on the back vibe. You can almost imagine him with a cowboy hat, chewing on a piece of long grass out of the corner of his mouth. And it was clear to me, after the first or second day out there, that it was gonna be a tough nut to crack. But if there was one person to crack a nut, It was Richard Hyde. He'd been around Atlanta a long time. He knew the way the city worked, and he also knew these teachers. 
it made sense that they didn't trust him. They knew that our governor had appointed three old white guys that had been in the government before sending people to prison. I expected that. I didn't expect the red carpet to be rolled out the first day. So I just kept going back. I would hand out cards and I would have lunch. I'd eat lunch in the lunchroom of the school. I'd be there in the afternoons. Okay, this is weird. Just imagine being at your workplace, eating lunch in the cafeteria, and this strange looking dude is handing out business cards, looking at people from across the room, trying to get their attention. It's no surprise that for Richard, things weren't going so well. I had already decided in my mind it was going to be the last day I was going to go to Venetian Hills and I was going to pick another school to go to because I had come up with nothing. He was about to cut his losses, try somewhere else. Maybe his old sheriff powers were on the wane. But he decided to give it one last shot with one of the teachers, a woman called Jackie Parks. I went by her classroom and... She was standing in the doorway, and she said in, to me, in hindsight, it was very exaggerated, oh, I'm, I cannot talk to you. I don't know anything about anything. I just have nothing to say to you. She said it so loudly and in such an obvious way. It's clear she wanted everyone to hear what she had to say. To me, that was a red flag that I needed to meet with her privately. And we set up a meeting with her and her lawyer here at the law firm in this room. And she broke it open. Had it not been for Ms. Park's honesty and wanting to, I guess, cleanse her soul, I don't think we would have figured out what was going on. So what was going on? We'll find out in the next episode of Cheat, out May 25th. Hey, good people, just before we go, don't forget to follow the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get them. And not that you're going to do it because we ask, but it helps if you leave us a rating and a review as well. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. The producer for this episode is Tom Fuller. Our series editor is Joe Sykes. The executive producer is Tom Koenig. The original idea was developed by Tom Fuller, engineering sound design and scoring by Martin Peralta and Output Music. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah Delarue. And a big thanks to Steve Ackerman, Mark Rivers, Peggy Sutton, Ella McLeod, Dasha Litsitsina, Chris Skinner, and Arlie Adlington. Oh man, y'all did this on purpose. Um, Jesus, that was worse than the goddamn script read. I'm stopping the recording now. <laughs>